Okay, good morning everyone. Great to be with you again. Uh, very excited this morning. We have some visitors. My, my kids and their friends surprised me by showing up this morning, so uh, we're so happy to, to see them and uh, very, very happy to have them. <clears throat> also, a, a little bird told me that Bob and Cherry are going to be celebrating 62 years of marriage tomorrow, so praise God. <clears throat> Unbelievable. So congratulations, you guys. You're a great example and witness to us. All right. So we are going to continue our series in Genesis 15 this week. Uh, I botched the downloading of the slides, so uh, you're going to have to read your Bibles this week. So I hope you brought them. They are not going to be on the screen this week. So uh, Genesis 15, uh, one of the great, great chapters of the Bible. Uh, if you are an unbeliever, this chapter is for you. If you are a believer, but you have a doubt here and there. Uh, this chapter is for you. If you're a believer waiting on a promise for God, from God, this chapter is for you. So uh, basically, whoever you are, wherever you are in your walk, this chapter is for you, Genesis uh, chapter 15. You know, our courts are filled with cases that are the result of, of people breaking promises to another. One person makes a promise to do something for another, and they fail to do it, and then a lawsuit results. And, and uh, our courts are just jammed with cases that, that are just a result of people failing to fulfill their promises. And, and we enter into promises, we enter into contracts with the best of intentions normally, but, you know, life gets in the way sometimes, and we thought we could fulfill a promise, we thought we could fulfill an obligation, and it turns out that we can't. But thankfully, God is not like us, right? God never has life get in the way, right? That never happens to God. Uh, God is limitless in his resources. He's pure in his motives. Everything that he does is perfect and wonderful, and so you never have to worry about whether God is able to fulfill a promise or whether he uh, is pure enough or powerful enough or has the desire to fulfill a promise that he made. Uh, when God promises to do something, it's money in the bank, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, right? It's money in the bank. Now, he may not always tell us exactly when he's going to fulfill a specific promise that he makes, but if he makes you a promise, you can count on it. And so uh, he just may not always tell us when. So this week, we're going to see a lot of things in this chapter. We're going to see that the promises that he made in chapter 12 are going to be repeated. Then there's going to be preparation for the covenant. Then there's going to be prophecy revealed, and then the promises are going to be sealed by a covenant. And then finally, we'll talk about what the relevance is to us. So let's uh, turn to Genesis chapter 15, and we will read verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, this is kind of a familiar story to us, and I think that when we hear it, we can sometimes become too familiar with it, and we can forget that Abram is having a one-on-one -on -one 
personal conversation with the God of the universe, the maker of all things, uh, the all-powerful one, God has stooped down to have this conversation with Abram and to reassure Abram that what he has promised him, he will bring to pass. Uh, you know, God still speaks to us today, right? When we go to him in prayer, when we read our Bible, when we uh, fellowship with other believers, God speaks to us in that way today too. And, and how gracious of God to do that. Well, as we approach the text, verse 1 says, the first thing that God says to Abram, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. So realize, first of all, that, that this is a vision. Uh, he's awake. Abram is awake for this, and God is appearing to him in a vision. This is how he chooses to reveal himself to God in this particular instance. And he says, I, I will be your shield. Your reward will be great. Uh, God says, don't fear. And what he's saying, basically, is this is a repeat of the promises that he made in chapter 12. Remember in chapter 12, God said to Abram, uh, I will be a blessing to you, and all who bless you I will bless, and all who curse you I will curse. And so when he's talking about this reward, which will be great, uh, it's essentially a repeat of these blessings. But Abram, being a uh, human being like you and I, uh, we doubt, right? And so we have questions. And so even this great patriarch, even Abram, had doubts. And so we ask God, how will I know? This very simple, this very human question that we ask all the time. How will I know? How can I know, God? Uh, how can I come to trust you? Uh, in verses 2 and 3, he questions God about the seed promise, right? Abram by now, we know, is wealthier than his wildest dreams, right? He's got all the material possessions in the world, but he's got nobody to give them to. God has promised him descendants. He's promised him seed, but there is no seed, and several years have passed. Uh, remember the promises that were made in chapter 12. That's a long time ago now, right? A lot has happened. When, when God made those promises to Abram, Abram was in Ur of the Chaldees, and he had to walk a thousand miles to Haran and then into Canaan. And then the famine struck, and so he goes down south to Egypt, then he returns to Egypt, and then he conquers these armies from the north and from the east. And now here we are in chapter 15, so several years have passed. He's been married for quite a while, and yet there is still no seed. So, you know, Abram's getting nervous. This is a very, very human uh, emotion to have. And so God graciously answers his concern in verses 4 and 5. What does he say to him? He says, this man will not be your heir, this Eleazar of Damascus. Uh, remember, Lot is gone. Abram took Lot with him because he thought that if God doesn't fulfill his promise of seed, maybe Lot could be the heir through whom the promise will come. But Lot's gone. He's left and he's living down in Sodom uh, and Gomorrah. And Abram is childless. And this Eleazar of Damascus is the head servant in his household. And it was common in those days, if you didn't have an heir, uh, for you to adopt an, uh, a servant or somebody of high rank in your household, and then that person would become your heir so that you had somebody to turn your household over to. So Abram thinks that it, it's going to be Eleazar of Damascus, and God says, no, it's not going to be Eleazar of Damascus. It's going to be somebody from your own body. That who is who is going to be your heir. Uh, and so that is, is the... Uh, that's the promise. And then he talks about these, the number of descendants that he's going to have. So he takes Abram outside and he says, look up. Look up as far as you can see. 
Uh, count the stars if you can when you look up in a clear night sky, a dark, dark sky, and, and think about all the stars that you can see. He says, count them if you can, so shall your descendants be. And uh, as in chapter 13, where he talked about your descendants will be as numerous as the dust on the earth, now he changes the metaphor, and now it's the number of stars in the sky. And so we come to this most amazing verse, verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 6. Abram believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, this is a verse that, that we all ought to have memorized. We, we all ought to know this verse because it's such an important verse in the Bible. It's such an important verse in our theology because what we need is to have our faith reckoned to us as righteousness. So to be righteous means to conform to an ethical or moral standard. That's what the word righteous means. But you know from your own life, and I know from my own life, that I do not conform to God's moral standard. I wish I did, but I fall short all the time. And if you examine your lives truthfully, you'd have to admit the same. None of us can live a perfectly moral uh, life. And so what do we need? We need God to credit his righteousness to us, or we cannot be saved. And so that's what happens here with Abram. And, and how does that happen? God simply credits his account with righteousness because Abram believed. Now, when Abram believed, did he become a perfectly moral, perfectly pure, sinless creature from that point on? We're going to find out in the very next chapter that that did not happen. Um, uh, we don't become morally perfect, sinless creatures when God credits righteousness to us. It is a gift of grace that God credits righteousness to us when we believe in him. So the sole condition of this righteousness has always been faith, right? That's what we have to have. Romans 3.23 says that there is none who does good, not even one. So if we're counting on our works to save us, we're going to fail miserably, right? Uh, what we need is for God to credit this righteousness to our account. Man has no righteousness of his own, so God must give us his righteousness if we're going to be saved. And so when we're saved, it's like God takes your debt, your sin debt, and he takes this big stamp and he goes chunk right, right on it, and he says, paid in full, no debt owed. It's like when you go to court and you were caught doing 25 miles over the speed limit and you're dead to rights, they have the radar, they have the tuning fork, it's all been done perfectly and you know you're a dead man, and the judge says, not guilty, right? That's what it's like when you, when you are credited with righteousness. And so uh, that is what it is. It's a gift of grace. So when we try to earn it by our own works, we, we will always fall short of that. Every other religion in the world, right? If, if you know anything about Islam, if you know anything about any of the major world religions, it's a do religion, right? Do, do, do. And then uh, if... if Allah or whoever it is, the, whatever religion it is, uh, if, if God is feeling magnanimous that day, uh, you can be saved. But, but Christianity is not like that. Christianity is a religion where Jesus has done all the work and we get uh, the results. There was a song in the 1960s that many of you may be familiar with called Last Kiss. And the chorus goes, Oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I've got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world. That is a heart-wrenching song. Every time I hear that, I actually turn it off because it's too much for me. I can't take it. Uh, it's very, very sad. 
Um, but it's a great song, but the theology is terrible. It's terrible, terrible theology. Uh, if he wants to see his baby again, he doesn't have to do good. He's got to place his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if I could speak to the writer of that song, that is what I would tell him. Uh, that, that's how we are saved. So uh, you can't earn your salvation. If you could earn your salvation, then God owes it to you. Paul said, uh, Paul said uh, to a man who works, wages are owed to him. And to a man who, to whom grace is given, it is a free gift from God. So let's say that you are somebody who wants to achieve your own righteousness and you want to think about how good a person you are and you think that you can get to heaven by your own good works. Or let's say you're one of those people who looks around and says, ooh, I'm, I'm better than that person and I'm, I'm better than that person. You know, I'm, I'm pretty good. I think, I think I can get to heaven on my own. Uh, you're going to fall way short. So let me illustrate it to you like this. Let's say that you are standing on one side of the Grand Canyon. You're over here. The Grand Canyon is miles in the other direction. And that's the gulf between us and God and, and where heaven is. Now, if we are going to get to heaven, we have to run and we have to jump across the Grand Canyon. Now, our good works are the distance that we can jump from this end of the Grand Canyon to the other. So if our good works are good enough, we can make it across. But not only that, we have in our pockets for every sin that we commit, God puts a little rock in our pocket, right? Every sin, we're carrying a little rock. And so we're a little bit weighted down. And so I'm standing here, and you're standing there, and you're standing there, and we're all looking at each other, thinking that we're better than the other person. And then we go and we run, and we jump across, and we try and cross the Grand Canyon. Well, you may jump 10 feet further than me or 20 feet further than me, but we are all going to be dashed to bits on the rocks below, like Wile E. Coyote in those Roadrunner uh, cartoons, remember? <laughs> the cloud of smoke and Wile E. Coyote. He comes back from the dead. We wouldn't, but um, uh, Wile E. Coyote is, is like that. He, he's got that power. We do not. We will never cross according to our own ability. We can't do it. But when we believe in his son, God declares us righteous, and he does what we cannot do. He takes us across the Grand Canyon, and so that's where we find ourselves uh, when we believe in God. Now, Abram didn't have that promise of the Lord Jesus yet, but he believed God. And that was enough for Abram at this point. He believed God. God took Abram across, and now God is going to enter into a covenant with him to fulfill the promises that he made to him in chapter 12. So uh, we're calling this section the preparation for the covenant. Let's read verses 7 through 11. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. All right, so God first says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. And, and that's a statement of who God is. But then you have Abram in the very next verse. First, he doubted the seed problem or, or promise and asked that question in verse 2. And now in verse 8, now we're talking about the land promise. So, so Abram's asking, how can I know? Again, how can I know, Lord, uh, that I will possess it? And so he's like the man in Mark chapter 9 who says, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. And God is so gracious to him that he's going to help Abram with his unbelief. And so he says, uh, bring, me, bring me these animals. Well, 
what in the world is going on here? Bring me these animals. And Abram takes a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old ram, a three-year-old goat, and he cuts them in half and he lays them opposite each other, kind of making a path between these cut-up animals. Well, Abram knew exactly what was going on here because that is the way that, that the ancients made contracts, made covenants with each other when they wanted to enter into a contract. This is what they did. Now, you and I, when we enter into a contract, what do we do? We, we write our names on a piece of paper. That is so lame. That is so weak. That's so wimpy compared to what these ancients used to do. What they were saying with this, with this arrangement that they would do is, uh, may it be to me as to these animals if I should fail to fulfill my end of this covenant. And so you're basically calling down a curse on yourself saying, may I be cut in pieces if I don't fulfill my end. And so when Abram was told to cut these pieces, he knew what was coming. There was going to be a covenant that was coming. And then you have these birds of prey that come down. And it seems like a randomly placed verse. Uh, apparently God wasn't ready to speak to Abram at the moment. And the birds of prey, these vultures are coming down and they're, they want to feed on these dead animals, right? Well, the, the dead animals, or uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the vultures probably represent the unclean nations who are going to be attacking Israel for Israel's entire history. And Abram represents the nation of Israel who is going to have to fight off these nations for its entire history. So that's probably what is going on here. But either way, with these animals prepared, uh, it's now time for the covenant. And Abram, having entered into covenants in his life, expected that God would state the terms of the covenant and then that both parties would walk through the animal pieces and then that would be uh, the, the making of the covenant. But God had something else in mind completely. And what he's going to do first before he seals the covenant is that he's going to reveal prophecy to Abram. So let's take a look at the prof prophecy that's going to be revealed to Abram, verses 12 through 16. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So for Abram, he's got, he's got some news here, right? First, he falls into this deep sleep, and it's a dark sleep, and it's a terrifying sleep because God is about to reveal to him things that he does not yet know. And what he doesn't know is that uh, there is going to be judgment on this nation of Israel. And, and so he says to him, know for certain that your descendants are going to be held captive for 400 years. Now, that's a really, really long time. Uh, and what we're, we're, we're not told here is who the oppressing nation is. But we know that Moses wrote Genesis. We know that Moses wrote Exodus. And so we know from reading the, uh, the Bible, continuing into Exodus, that this nation is Egypt. And we know from reading our Bibles that exactly what God prophesied actually came true, right? Abram did have descendants. And Joseph, Abram's great-grandson, became second in command uh, to Pharaoh in Egypt. And when there was famine in, uh, in Canaan, Jacob brought his family down 
to Egypt, and there his family thrived. Joseph and Jacob died, but the family, Israel, grew like crazy. And then they became so numerous that the that a, a, a next pharaoh decided that, that these Israelites were dangerous. There were just too many of them. They had thrived so much that, that he put them in bondage rather than risk that they could be a military threat to Egypt. And then Moses is the one who led them out of their bondage, out of Egypt, to the Exodus with many possessions, right? We read in Exodus that, that, uh, that the Egyptians showered these Israelites with gifts, and so they plundered the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt. And so, and so that's what they did. Uh, so all of those promises were fulfilled literally. All of those prophecies were. Uh, so that's bad news for Israel. But for Jacob, I'm, I'm sorry, for, but for Abram, uh, bad news for his descendants, good news for him in that he himself is going to go down to his fathers in peace. Uh, he is not going to, to suffer the uh, same fate that his, his uh, descendants will because he is going to go down to his fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. So notice that implicit in this entire prophecy is the idea that Abram has to have descendants, right? If he doesn't have descendants, then there can be nobody who goes down into Egypt and gets oppressed for 400 years. So uh, this is a good news, bad news situation for Abram. He's going to have descendants more numerous than you can count. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's good news. But, but 400 years, boy, that's a long time. Is that really necessary? Well. God tells us why that's necessary. It's because the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, the Amorites live, uh, I showed you last week where they are. They're kind of uh, in the neighborhood of, of the southern end of the Dead Sea, where Sodom and Gomorrah is. That, that's where they live. They have 400 years left so that their sin can become as bad as it's ever going to be. Uh, and then when the Israelites come out of Egypt and go back to Israel, they're going to pass the Amorites on the way, and the Amorites are going to end up being judged by Israel. And so that is how God is going to deal with that problem. So God revealed the prophecy before he sealed the covenant. So let's see how God seals the covenant, because Abram's question, how will I know, still has not been answered, right? Abram still has an, an unanswered question here. And so here's how God answers the question, verses 17 to 21. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. The smoking oven and the flaming torch. These are difficult words to translate. You may have something different in your uh, version of the Bible. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Uh, these words are very similar to the words that Moses used when he wrote about God on Mount Sinai uh, when he was about to receive the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. So it's the same words. It's the same idea. Moses is intentionally using the same words so that it, he's talking about God here. And, and what does God do? It's dark, and God goes through these pieces alone. He goes through by himself. Abram never walked through the pieces of the animal. And so what is God saying? God is saying that I, myself, am binding myself to this covenant with you, Abram. There is nothing here for Abram to obey. But for, for God, 
If I don't fulfill this covenant, I will suffer great loss. May it be to me as to these animal pieces if I do not fulfill my terms of, of the covenant. And, and what is it that God can lose if he doesn't fulfill his covenant, if he proves that he, he's not able to do it? What does this say about God? He doesn't tell the truth. He's not trustworthy. He's not all-powerful. He doesn't have authority, so we don't need to obey him. He himself would suffer the disgrace of not being able to fulfill the terms of an agreement that he entered into. And worst of all is that he would essentially be asking or, or directing that he himself be cut off from us if he's not able to fulfill the terms of that covenant. That's a very, very heavy load that God took on uh, and he didn't require anything of Abram. And in verses 18 to 21, he gives uh, Abram the boundaries that they are going to inherit. And the boundaries that they are going to inherit stretch all the way from the Nile River in Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates River, which is well, well north of, of Syria and, and into Mesopotamia. Uh, that's the land that they are supposed to possess, that they're supposed to inherit. But at its peak, Israel never inherited or possessed anywhere near all of the land that God has promised to Israel. Uh, during David and Solomon's years, and that's about 80 years, about 1000 BC, uh, they possessed a good portion of the land and exerted influence over much of the rest of it. But as soon as Solomon died and the kingdom divided, that was the end of that. Uh, and so they, they have never inherited and possessed all of that land. But that's okay because the covenant does not depend on us and our sinfulness. The covenant depends on God and his faithfulness. So that's why I believe that this covenant has to be fulfilled literally and that it will be fulfilled literally after the second coming uh, when in, in the thousand year uh, millennial kingdom. So there's gonna be delay, but, uh, but delay, uh, the, the, the delay of a promise doesn't mean the denial of a promise. A promise delayed is not a promise denied. And so uh, what I want you to see is the gospel here. I want you to see the gospel because God walked through the pieces alone and he promised to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. What did Jesus do for us? He went to the cross and he went there alone, right? There is nothing that we have to do except to place our faith in him. And when we do that, uh, it's like he has stamped our account paid in full. All we have to do is believe. He, he, it's like he went through the animal parts alone by himself, just like what God did here with Abram. So uh, to talk about good works again, when we do good works, when we do things that, that, that we do for the Lord and we want it credited to us, we do those things from the other side of the Grand Canyon. We don't do them to jump across the Grand Canyon. We do it out of gratitude for him already having taken us across the Grand Canyon. We do them because we're so thankful and grateful for what he has done for us. So this is just a most amazing chapter in the Bible. When you think about all that God has risked here uh, by saying what he has said, uh, and you can see the parallels between God going through the pieces alone and Jesus going to the cross alone for us. So let's think about what we can learn from this most incredible passage. And the first thing I want to talk about is, is the first thing that, that God says to Abram. He says, fear not. This is the first of 180 times in the Bible where God says something like either fear not, 
do not be afraid, something like that. And, and I think what he's trying to communicate with us is that he doesn't want us to be afraid, right? I mean, how much more plain could he say it? Don't be afraid, fear not. Uh, why? Because the very next sentence is, I will be your shield. What's a shield? What do we use a shield for? It's a weapon of war, right? We put it on ourselves like this, and, and we use it to block the swords and the arrows and the rocks and the bullets and whatever may be coming our way. Uh, it's not a passive thing. A shield is used when you're going into war, right? And when you go into war, you're holding up this shield and you're knocking down, deflecting everything that's coming your way. So God is saying to you, life is hard. You're going to have hard times, but I will be your shield. I will protect you. I will bring you through whatever it is that you're going through. So don't be afraid because I'm with you. I have you. I have your back is what he's saying. Uh, and then when you get through this thing, your reward will be very great, right? You don't get the reward until you get through the battle. And after the battle, you get the reward. And what's the reward? Well, for us, spiritual growth, right? Increased faith as we, as we learn how great God is and how he brings us through whatever difficult trial that we're going through. So there are trials, but he is our shield and we will receive a great reward. So fear not. Uh, the second thing, God can handle your doubt. Here's Abram, a guy who has one-on-one -on -one conversations with God uh, that, that are just astounding when we read these conversations that, that, he's had, that he has with God. And yet still, Abram constantly needs reassurance. How will I know, God? How will I know? Uh, and God so graciously tells him how he will know. I'm entering into this covenant with you so that you will know. It's why God went through the animal pieces alone. Abram can't do anything. God does it all. He does it all. His, the promises don't depend on us. They depend on him. And so if we're thinking, you know, God, what, what if I've sinned and what if I fail and what if I fall? Uh, will you withdraw the promise from me? Uh, God, what, what if you just decide, you know, this guy is just not worthy of my blessing. I'm not going to give him that blessing. God doesn't think like that. We think like that. Those are human emotions. But God has covenanted with us. And that is a done deal when God covenants with us. We don't have to worry about that. Uh, Abram was worried about that. Uh, last week, Allie had a really difficult week, our daughter. Um, she learned that um, a, a, a young girl, three years old, uh, that she used to watch while she was uh, uh, minding the kids at, at Stonebriar, the church that we used to go to, uh, she fell into a pool and she died. She drowned, a three-year-old girl. And, you know, when things like that happen, uh, those are gut punches to our faith. And, and they are so difficult when we hear things like that, especially if you know the person, you cry out to God, God, I am so angry with you. I'm so mad at you. How is it that you could allow something like this to happen? God, why? And God can handle that, right? Uh, God, God is big enough to handle that. He's big enough to handle our doubts and our frustrations and the things that we don't understand about God. But the one thing that he wants you to do is he wants you to look to the cross because whatever things happen in our lives, whatever bad things may happen, they don't happen because God doesn't love us. Uh, when we look at the cross, we know that God loved us because he sent his own son to die for our sins so that we could be with him in heaven. And so that's a, a tremendous sacrifice. There is no greater sacrifice Whatever bad things happen, God doesn't tell us he's going to explain to us everything in life, but he does tell us, look to the cross, look at my son, uh, trust me. 
Uh, bad things happen, but not because God has forgotten his promises. Uh, think about the Psalms. If you've ever read David and the Psalms, uh, that's like reading the diary of a man who is in pain and who is being persecuted, followed, uh, attempted to be killed daily. And he says to God, why, God, how long until you vanquish my enemies? That's what, that's what the Psalms are all about, right? God can handle that. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, and so God welcomes that kind of prayer. He welcomes that kind of discussion. But he wants you to look to the cross. So, so look to the cross when you're having difficulty. God can handle your doubt. And finally, promises delayed are not promises denied. Well, God, what if I have to wait a long time? God, I thought you promised me something, and I've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and, and still nothing, God. You know, what are you doing? What is your plan? Well, remember God has to work things out in his own time. He allowed 400 years to pass with his own people, his chosen people, the Israelites, in captivity, in bondage, in slavery, to, in, to, in Egypt. And why? Because these Amorites, who are not his chosen people, had not had their iniquity become complete yet. He's given these Amorites, who are not his people, 400 years to repent at the expense of the people he loves, because God loves everybody. He loves all of his creatures so much. And so uh, we have to trust God to fulfill his promises in his time, even though we would like to speed them up. When I was uh, trying to candidate and, and, and receive a pastoral position, uh, I was like, God, let's go, let's go, let's go. And, and I was waiting and I wanted so badly for, for, for this to happen. But it is such a blessing now that I have received the call from this church in God's own time uh, and not according to my time, because when we rush God along, we end up botching the whole thing. And when we allow God to do it in our own time, it's more perfect and we appreciate it more because God has given it to us the way he wants to give it to us and so this is why these Israelites had to, had to endure these 400 years of captivity. Well, this week we've seen a lot in terms of God's grace in the life of Abram. God goes through the pieces alone. That is the gospel. He unilaterally binded himself to a contract, to a covenant, even though he knew that the people he was binding himself to were going to be a rebellious group of sinners, uh, constantly rebelling against him. God knows that, but he's also so good and so patient and so long-suffering, and he loves us so much that uh, a length of time is, is nothing to God. He will fulfill his promises to us. And so I just want to go out from here praising God and thanking him uh, for what a glorious and wonderful God he is. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you so much that you went through the pieces alone. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. There's no covenant that we could be bound to that we could fulfill the terms of, Lord. And so you have to fulfill your end and our end, Lord. And that's just so staggering to think about. Lord, the covenant is that we, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. We will, we, we will be with you in heaven someday. And Lord, we are eternally grateful for that. We are so thankful for the promises that you make to us. And uh, we are grateful and we praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.